Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Leslie Powell with the Yale World Fellows Program. I'm speaking with Subhashini Chandran, a 2010 Yale World Fellow from India. Shubha Chandran is the CEO of the Woodbriar Group, whose flagship operation, Tea Estates India, is the largest privately owned tea plantations business in all of India. The company also has business interests in insurance, real estate, and other areas, and she is also engaged in social entrepreneurship, regional biodiversity councils, and ecotourism. You're a busy woman, Shuba. Tell us about your tea and where you produce it. What kinds of tea do you make, and where are the markets for it? Our interests are um, largely based out of South India, Leslie, um, working in two states, Tamil Nadu and Kerala, producing black teas mainly. Um, it comes out of the same stock as your green teas and uh, other flavor teas that are so popular, particularly in America, as post-dinner drinks. But what we make um, is the strong black stuff that people drink first thing in the morning, um, the working man's cover, as I like to say. And uh, out of South India, going all over the world. We feed markets largely within 200 kilometers of where we are. But a part of what we make, because the quantities are fairly large, also ends up um, in shops in Egypt and uh, homes in Afghanistan and Pakistan and uh, the CIS countries. Some of it in tea bags um, on shelves in Sainsbury's in the UK too, and possibly in the States, though we don't directly export to America. Are there brand names that are recognizable outside of India? Only in the wholesale markets. So all our production goes into auctions that are fairly regulated and operated on by traders, exporters, blenders within um, the tea space. So we have about 15 wholesale brands. So if you're up to buying 50 kilos or more and registered to operate at one of these auctions in Cochin or Kuno or Coimbatore, some of the oldest auction centers in South India, two out of the three that I've mentioned set up by the British, um, you would have heard of these brands. I see. During your time here at Yale, you've told the story of bringing your family tea business almost literally back from the dead. Right. What were some of the most valuable lessons that you learned from this experience? Very simple lessons, actually. Um, not just in terms of reviving a family business, but uh, in terms of reshaping optimism around an industry that uh, had begun to lose hope in itself for standard reasons that one would do within, you know, within an economic conversation about viability and productivity and those kinds of things. So um, to give you some historical context, between 97 and 2004, which is a key period of my working life in South India in agriculture, over 40 private employers in the plantation sector shut down business, leaving over 90,000 people unemployed without an alternate plan, without um, any state policy to support migration of these people's skills to something else. And to me, that was uh, unacceptable and also unbelievable. How could li the livelihood of so many people and their skills become something unviable or unneeded within a society when they were making a product that everybody was drinking all around you every morning? So um, the first lesson I learned is that uh, you don't give up on things based on books people have written or theories that you might have studied in college. You give up really when you believe that you've tried everything possible and nothing has worked. 
um, a lot of reviving the tea business within South India, both for Woodbriar and then going on to do more of it and shaping the conversation for other people, which is the way it turned out looking back after 14 years, um, was to look at simple solutions to what were larger problems. So the first thing was to focus on local markets. If there was a glut in the auctions and uh, there was lots of produce and you couldn't sell it, that's where the initial problem came from. Um, I started asking questions around quality and market. So why couldn't we sell this dust when more of the poor world was drinking it um, than any other beverage? Um, because we weren't producing for these poor people good quality. So first we began to focus on making quality without really much of a cost differential, um, just plucking better leaf, plucking it more frequently on the field, educating our workers on the importance of good quality raw material, number one. Number two, when we were producing it, being very, very tight on the final product's quality to say that it had to have the right flavor and the right appearance. And third, um, to reject large buyers that were focused on export markets to say that you can come and operate on our teas, but we're not hanging on your every purchase. We're going to see how we can get our product to the people who are actually making it. So ironically, um, 30,000 people you know, are within the Woodbriar Employee Independent Community now. They all drink tea. And this is just a very, very, very minute um, piece in terms of population size that consumes tea just within the four southern states of India. So, and they were not being able to access the good qualities they were producing. So we took these teas back to their market and realized that even at the bottom of the pyramid, um, there was reasonable profit to be had, if that's all you were looking for. And there was a consumer to sell to if you respected them enough to sell to them. Mm -hmm. So these were the two largest um, lessons for me. You uh, also categorize yourself as a social entrepreneur. Uh, and as I understand it, many of your social entrepreneurial activities were started as a way to empower your own workforce, especially, especially the women in your workforce. Um, can you tell me about some of the most important initiatives that you've started and how they've actually empowered the people in your workforce and particularly the women? Sure. Um, so uh, the term social entrepreneurship see, um, has gained a lot of momentum in the last 10 years. So it's something that got um, used on me before I adapted it and I've just let it be. I think most business is necessarily social. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure... I would give too much weight to that, except to say that uh, a large part of the focus of my work and passion for me is the impact we can have on the lives of the communities within which we work. That's just a very personal thing, and therefore um, I've been able to define the organization's value system around that. I've been lucky enough to do that because we've remained privately owned. So um, the board is professional, but um, only has people on it who would be committed to a similar value system. And we don't report um, to a larger shareholder base and we don't suffer from the pressures of quarterly results. And we've been able to therefore take a longer term view on development, on um, financial returns and performance of the company. So given this background, we have then been able to also implement um, initiatives which in the longer term have also proven to be good business. For example, um, enhancing the skills of our women workforce. 70% of our workforce are women. And it always seemed, you know, a bit strange to me that these 70% were really the bottom. They had, in my view, some of the highest skills, lowest literacy rates, and yet were bottom of um, the wage scale. So they would be plucking the leaf. 
and their husbands and brothers and brother-in-laws would be supervising them. So to every 12 women that were plucking this green leaf, you would have a husband who didn't have the skill to pluck this leaf, but supervised 12 women who were plucking the leaf and telling them how to do it better, um, and who also didn't necessarily get past third grade. So I didn't understand what was the differentiation in knowledge and skill level that um, allowed for them to be supervisors and not these women to graduate even to that job after having worked in the field and built the skill. So um, the first thing we did was um, introduce an, a skills enhancement program for them to say that, well, you're plucking, and it's true you might be uncomfortable to be supervising your husband, but you could supervise your co-workers. They're, they're women if you aspire for that job. And one of the early reactions we had was, no, 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 then my husband or brother would be unemployed. And that's his job. I want him to have that job. So we had to parallelly um, do skills enhancement for these men who were just one level above them to move them on to other things and then bring women into what I call management, maybe at really at a base level, but it was also management. So managing teams, we moved them up. That was one thing that we did. And um, another thing that we did was train them in leadership. So um, representation in worker committees and unions and where it was largely male-dominated. Um, and we used um, the religious community leaders within the plantations to get um, buy-in of the women into this. As I was saying, a lot of, there was a lot of resistance and insecurity about you know, the men losing the jobs or um, negative reactions within the community because you know when the sun sets, they all have to go back to the same homes and live in the same neighborhoods. And up in the hills, there really is nowhere else you can run to. So you know, they didn't want to upset the harmony and the balance. So. Um, we, we had to work sensitively using the religious communities, also counseling the men, finding them other alternatives to move upwards and aspire to and train these women. And I'm happy to say we have about, I think, 300 plus women now. It's been difficult. It's a small number. But we do have over 300 women who are either machine operators um, on the field, so no more plucking by hand. It's a beautiful, wonderful skill, but it is also drudgery, plucking leaf by hand. So moving them to machines makes their work a little easier. Um, some of them do that. A few of them now supervise other women, so stand under umbrellas and uh, tell their co-workers how they should do their job better. And very, very few have moved further up into junior management, like foremen and that sort of thing. Um, we chip. We chip away at it, and we hope we can have more impact over time. Well, while we're on this topic of, of gender, because that plays heavily into the dynamics of your, of your particular workforce, how, how is it for you? You're a woman in rural India, managing a very traditional agricultural business. Are there gender-specific obstacles in your way or, or not? Um, absolutely. I think they've been there from the beginning. Um, it's a little less now. Um, from the early days where you were sensitive towards everything, from dressing up to look older and serious and uh, to staying out of the press and necessarily nominating older senior executives who were your employees to be in public positions um, and staying in the background. These were sort of the early tactics that I, I, I had to necessarily adopt as strategies to get buy-in, um, to be taken seriously, and to build the institution. So it wasn't about me, it was about building an institution, and we did that. Um, but it has been 13, 14 years now, and enough time to build your own identity. I think it is also true, even in um, southern India, in agriculture, which is so male-dominated, um, that you can't suppress merit. And uh, people then slowly get to know you, and they get to know your work. And those who think you're doing something useful seek you out and then begin to support you. 
um, so it, it's a good time. I, I came to Yale at a very good time of my career, and we meet at a very nice time to talk about this. But it hasn't always been this way. Um, there's been challenges dealing with the politics of India, um, the bureaucracy, uh, within business, within the industry. I mean, I still uh, don't hold any of the senior positions within our associations that um, were offered to us as one of the largest members of these associations, you'll find most of my senior colleagues are the nominees for our companies. Um, and that's something that I've chosen to do because um, it's What kinds easier. of associations are you talking about? Well, we are one of the largest representatives um, of the United Planters Association of South India, um, the tea trade associations of Coimbatore and Cochin, Planters Association of Tamil Nadu, we're everywhere. And you'll find three to five people from uh, my company on the boards and the executive committees, and some of them have been presidents of these associations, and I've steered clear of these public positions because um, it's been easier to do so and achieve what we need to achieve. You're able to convey your message through your male counterparts um, in a more effective and expedient way. So, yeah, I think gender matters. It absolutely matters, and I've strategically chosen to play it this way so we can achieve what we need to achieve mm-hmm. rather than worry about dealing with one more thing which is about personal you know recognition and identity so it hasn't been so important so your strategy has been to be a little bit behind the scenes absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely and i think that's um worked very well for us interesting uh just a final question you've spent the last semester here at yale university as part of the world fellows program uh and my question is what is your takeaway what what do you take home with you um from, from having spent the four months here in New Haven? Two huge takeaways. Um, the first is validation. So um, I had a wonderful Western education, not a liberal one uh, in the British system, but uh, nevertheless a very enriching education. But after that, I went back to really the back of the beyond in, in the hills of South India to um, run a tea business which was not part of the plan initially. I mean, I I qualified um, in economics and then law. And the whole idea was to go and practice at the Supreme Court of India or something glamorous like that. (laughs) But opportunity came somewhere else, and I thought it was exciting, and I also believed that somebody had to do something about it, and I went to do that. Um, Very rapidly, you get sucked into um, situations, especially when they're challenging and negative. So the first eight, nine years of this 14-year journey has be, was, was one of um, desperation in an industry that had no hope to try and you know um, see what would work and to make it work. So I became increasingly narrow, focused on agriculture, then within agriculture, on tea and coffee and cardamom and a few products, and these communities around them. Um, I didn't realize till I got to New Haven and to these wonderful seven, eight streets that are Yale within New Haven, that so much has gone on in the world beyond what you read in newspapers. And it's important um, to have a wider understanding of what's going on. And then within that to realize that though you've been so narrow, some of the things that you've done um, are really at the edge of this conversation and in the frontier. And it's okay. You couldn't have done it so much better. So within the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the School of Management, I I sought out faculty members in the early weeks in a frenzy to say, this is what I've been doing. Surely we can do this better. How do we deal with our land more responsibly? Or how could we be more productive? Or can we treat our people better? 
Um, and how do we deal with this whole carbon offset conversation that's going on and biodiversity and pockets of forest? And what I've realized is that um, there's not that much more we can do. And we've done fairly well. So that's been huge. You know, when you're not making applications for awards and when you're not propping yourself up there as president of this and that, um, where is your validation coming from? After a while, you begin to think, it's just my voice ringing in my ear and a lot of people's lives depending on the decisions that I make. Um, so it's been great. It's been a huge takeaway for me to leave in about 10 days' time, knowing that, you know, it's okay. You didn't do so bad. And so it's a good model. And it's a model that you truly can take to other geographies, which is what we were thinking of doing um, when the World Fellows Program happened for me. So with more confidence um, and reassurance, I can move forward with that plan. So that's been wonderful. And the second learning is that everything is interconnected. So truly, this has been a wonderful experience of a liberal arts education. And I think it's important to think of history and geography and social sciences and politics and people and cultures of people. And the learnings that I've got here and some of the relationships that I've formed across cultures and learning that leadership sometimes also means to be quiet. And this group of peers, these 15 people with such divergent views has kind of um, helped me learn how to just be quiet as a leader. And listen. And um, yes, more than listen, to just be. I think we listen and then we don't also sometimes. But to listen and it's okay not to accept and to understand that it's not personal. Uh, I think that has been a great transformative learning for me and will stand me in very good stead, especially as we look at going to other geographies and working with international partners and the sorts of things we haven't done before, which we will necessarily have to do if we're going to go to more challenging geographies. Um, I think that's that's been great learning and leadership. That's wonderful to hear. Thank yeah. you so much, Shuba. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Leslie, for taking the time to speak. Thanks.